coming up on this week's episode of Tech Snap. Dan's back from BSD Can, and he's brought with him some peanut butter, some new tapes, and a new library that's the source of all truth. Then we've got the latest on Britney Spears' new career. Yeah, that's right. She's controlling botnets through Instagram comments. And Dan teaches us about steganography and how it recently helped catch an NSA leaker. Then we've got your feedback, a riveting roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on June 13th, 2017, and is episode 323. This episode was brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week, why it's that conference organizing, BSD booting beast of a host. That's right, it's our friend. Welcome to the show, Dan. That's me. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. You've been on the road. You finally made it back to your hometown. How does it feel? It's hot, but it feels good. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> It'd feel better if it wasn't 95 degrees, but it's not that bad. How were your um, various trips? It was one trip, two Ottawa, two conferences, I see. and so a week of work right in between. There together. That's nice. Yeah. Um, the two conferences are both held at University of Ottawa. And they're held there because that was the cheapest venue to downtown mm, mm-hmm. where then everyone could just go out in the evening and then come home at night without taking a taxi or a bus or something like Ooh, that. Sounds well organized. It is well organized. Thank <laughs> you very much. Awesome. Anything new or uh, any findings you wanted to share uh, from those awesome events? Um, new. I brought back... Four kilos of peanut butter. Wow. Craft peanut butter. Can may may I ask why? Because you can't buy it in the States. Oh, I did I did I, not realize I think, that. I have a feeling I grew up on craft <laughs> peanut butter. You've probably never heard no, of it. I don't craft think I have, no. Before. Yeah. But it's good then. Uh, or you like it. <clears throat> I guess it just reminds me of childhood or something. It remind it is very familiar and it's very yummy. Yeah, totally. Um I have those foods. Yeah, you know, just, it's associated with a time and a place, and it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. brings you to a certain mood. I brought back uh, a whole lot of empty LTO tape oh, cases. Nice, awesome. I brought back about twenty L uh, DLT four tapes. That someone didn't need, someone in oh. Europe didn't need. They brought them to me. That's convenient. And so I conferences went to my old... and uh, gear swap. Yes, and I bought three Carlton uh, shirts, like a sweatshirt, a mm-hmm. rugby shirt, and a t-shirt. Carlton's the university I went to. I think this is my first time back on campus in many years oh that's lovely it was neat to walk around the tunnels and see the computer science building that's now totally different and now they have a building just for human computer interface oh wow yeah so the alma mater that does sound yeah that sounds it was it was good but it's it's also good to be back home yeah well now that you're back i guess that means we can dive right into our uh live tech snap 
What do you have we for can. us now that we you're can. back? I've been sitting here in anticipation because I'm sure there's been a lot going on since the last time we did an episode. So there's a lot to catch up on. I don't know if we'll ever be able to catch up Probably on it, but not. we're going to try. So one of the first rules of journalism is to um, validate your your information. You just don't take one person's word for it. You you um, get it verified. You validate what they're saying. Otherwise, you risk the chance of telling lies. Right. You need at least some confidence in in the story you will be mm-hmm. you'll, will mm-hmm. be printing. I can't remember the actual term used for this. Something your sources or um, I can't remember what it is. But here's a case of where they took a document that had been provided to them confidentially and that outed the whistleblower. And people may not be aware that this sort of stuff is possible, but I do recall reading about this before. And coincidentally, just before I read this article, I read an article about how to get around the... um, the water, uh, the watermark that they're putting on the documents. Oh, interesting. So, the way this, um, the way this article starts off: When reporters at the Intercept approached the NSA on June first to confirm a document that had been anonymously leaked to the publication in May, they handed over a copy of the document to the NSA to verify its authenticity. When they did so, the Intercept team inadvertently exposed its source because the copy showed fold marks that indicated it had been printed and it it included encoded watermarking that revealed exactly when it had been printed and on what printer. So, to jump to how they are able to do this is color copiers can print like a, a little timestamp. It's not it's not in letters, but it's sort of like a um, it's almost like a barcode, but it's not a barcode. It's more like an RC code, um, but it doesn't look like an RC code because they print it on white paper with yellow ink, and it's not very it's very faint. But if you look under under the the right light, you can see it and you can read it. And it, it can th- hold things like the serial number of the printer, um, the date it was printed, um, the time, and that's enough to tell you who printed it. Because many printers nowadays will have a log of who was using the printer at a given time. And even if it doesn't have a log in the printer, your system logs would tell you who submitted a job to this printer over the internet at this time. Or even if it's a photocopier and you use a photocopier, you know, you scan your badge or something like that and you get to use a photocopier. So in, in, in this case, um, the article shows um, um, the watermarks that were in the image and they're kind of hard to see. Um, I think they've blown it up and, and done it under a different color light in order to see it. But it's obvious when you see it that it is actually little coated bits. And when you read it under the right light, it comes out to say that the printer's serial number was 535218, or might have had a prefix of 29, and it was printed on May 9th at 6.20 a.m. 
Now, there's some other stuff in there about column value and column 15 value and stuff like that, but I wasn't sure what that meant. I can certainly see how this would be handy for, you know, debug or tracking information. What are you debugging? I mean, in, uh, in, internally while you're working on, you know, if you're if you're sending different print jobs through and you're testing printer calibrations or or yeah. other systems. But that's n- that's not what it's for, though. It, it's specifically to identify leaked documents. Um, it, when we get to the next um, article, you'll see that some printer manufacturers have secretly decided to collaborate or put these things in. And why would they put them in? Because someone asked them to put them in. I can't see this as being a feature for the, the, the buyer of the printer. Unless, of course, you happen to be a very big company. That right, I was going to say, maybe, a, maybe an enterprise yeah. use case or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, no. Um, again, it's just, here's a way to track uh, who, who did this, who did that, mm-hmm. and what. So, the watermark shown in the image above, which is, an, which is an enhancement of the scan document, were from a Xerox DocuColor printer. Many printers use this or similar schemes printing faint yellow dots in a grid pattern on printed documents as a form of steganography. We'll get into what that is. Um, basically, that's encoding metadata about the document into the hard copy output. Um, now, researchers working with the EFF, you should donate to them, have reverse engineered the grid pattern employed by this class of printer using the, using the tool ARS and others determined using the tool. They haven't actually... EFF have reverse engineered it and created a tool. And using that tool, they've determined that the document was printed on such oh, and such so a date cool. and such and such a time. So because the NSA was unable to look at their own uh, audit logs, they, they narrowed it down to who this person was. And they went to them and said, did you do this? And they said yes. And um, unfortunately, it wasn't good. So, if you decide that you want to be a whistleblower, what do you do? Do you print out the document and then do this? Well, no. It turns out that there's a way to protect yourself against this. And it turns out that this tool came out directly to protect whistleblowers against hidden printer dots. And Interesting. There are, there are two ways of doing it. One is to print the document in black and white. Okay. So, it's only, because, I guess, I mean, right, it has to rely on the on color there to hide it because yellow will get translated to white and white on it you would think that they wouldn't print white well if you're printing in black and white you can't print white Mm -hmm. Uh, the other thing (coughs) pardon the other thing that they're doing is they're actually developing a tool which will strip meta meta data from a pdf oh that's awesome so you can including this sort of information so you could print it out and then and then scan it and then yes. purify it or, or whatever interesting so this he was working on a method of improving the security of leaked documents by removing hidden dots left behind laser printers which are usually used to watermark documents and track down leakers which is exactly what we talked about and his work was actually inspired by the case we just talked about now Ironically, 
the, this project is managed by First Look Media, which is the parent company of the news organization that outed this person in the first place. Interesting. Wow. So here is where they say, you know, the black to, black and white conversion will convert colors like the faded yellow dots to white, and that'll never get printed. And the purpose of this new uh, tool is is to suppress the dots left by a laser printer. So really, what I've learned learned from this this article in the Prudent. This article and the previous article is that if you do need to print out a document that is very sensitive, don't wind up folding it. Just keep it flat because that fold in the paper, when you wind up photocopying it, shows up in the photocopy. And then, then if they come to your home and they find this document, they can prove that the document you have at your place is a document that was photocopied. Because this is what this is what came out. They were talking about a fold in the paper. Mm-hmm. Wow! And because I saw the fold, they knew it had been printed elsewhere. So then they lo- looked on the photocopy to find the dots, and the dots proved that it actually was printed at the NSA at this time and in this place. Could, then they could identify who printed it. And based on that, that they found the whistleblower. Wow! Boy, it's really. I mean, it just really highlights how hard it is to move about our modern digital world without leaving tiny, invisible traces of yourself, even where you wouldn't suspect it. Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, I'm not really sure the best way to get around it, except being aware of things like that. It's like was it something. Uh, there's another w- way to do this. Take the document, uh, read it into OCR, optical character recognition, mm-hmm. and then print that. But then that's very difficult. You're not presenting someone with a document, are you? You're presenting someone right. with a transcript of a document. So it's kind of it's a little more difficult to follow through that way. Right. It's, and it's yeah. At that point, it's almost you know it's almost only as good as a yeah transcription of the document or or whatever. So. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that's funny. It's kind of low key techniques here. Instead of having the audio tape, you only have the transcript, Mm -hmm. and it's it's definitely not as good. Now, following on from this, here's a list of printers which do or do not display tracking dots. Now, don't use this because this was last updated. It was added in 2015, and the list is no longer being updated. In 2017, it appears that all recent commercial color laser printers print some kind of forensic tracking codes, not necessarily using yellow dots. This is true whether or not those codes are visible to the eye and whether or not the printer models are listed here. This also includes the printers that are listed here as not producing yellow dots. So buy a black and white printer. Yeah, exactly. Remember? Do you remember? Um, you must have read old crime stories about typewriters. Te- te- yeah, sure. They, they they could track back that the letter was written on this type of typewriter, and the the J was slightly broken, so that let them identify that it was a, you know, it matched this typewriter that was in the suspect's home and stuff like that. This is about the same thing. Mm-hmm. So if you want to send something securely, you're you're back to. Uh black and white printer or piecing letters together from a magazine like a serial killer something something like that mm-hmm. kidnappers did that didn't yeah they? kidnappers kidnappers yeah. yeah 
So yeah, it's um it's not the best if you really want to keep something secret from identifying you. But yeah, don't print it on a color printer. But I imagine that the majority of enterprises have color printers nowadays. Yeah, big multifunction color printer units. So something to be aware of. Be interesting to see. I'm looking through for Brother. Yes, yes, yes. Right, okay. I was just thinking about Brother as a good black and white printer brand. Oh wait, did they list it? Yes, they did. And I don't have. I don't. I'm looking at the color ones. I don't have the color ones. Mm-hmm. But yeah, all these manufacturers have decided to do this, and I would be interested to know whether or not they're doing this because they want to help their customers, or because they've been asked to by various government agencies. <laughs> It also makes me curious, you know, they apparently have not been able to find a way to, uh, you know, do something similar, Not obviously not with yellow, but that makes me wonder, are there other attack avenues available to black and white printers that maybe we don't know about? Yeah, it'd be... It'd be a lot more difficult, obviously. It, it wouldn't be too difficult just to alter... Oh, no, no, because the dots are bigger. I was thinking yeah. of pixels on a screen, you know, just slightly make one dot slightly less black but i suppose that you're right you know it probably is the vast majority these days of the printers they're worried about probably are you know color ones or ones that comply with this program so too late yep yep what i find is interesting about this list is that some manufacturers are stating that these documents that these printers do this and some are not like even within the same um, model well even within the same brand they, they don't always uh, um, reveal that they're doing this hmm. yeah if I was whistleblowing I wouldn't be printing out the document at work no, no exactly I mean like it's th- there's that angle as well that it's well yes you know it's, it's very interesting technically how this ended up working out and how they determined you know they got a hold of the document. They were able to analyze the the copy of the document, determine these things. But from the other end, you're right. Like I would, I would almost suspect that you know, most in most places, you have to submit printer jobs, maybe authenticated or through the domain or something like that. And then there's already a record that you submitted this print job and it went through. Imagine you had it on a th- thumb drive. You took that out from work because in, in some places you're not allowed any mm-hmm. thumb drives or anything like that. But right. Imagine you had it on a thumb drive and you took it, say, to your local coffee shop to get it printed. And unknown to you, they printed it on a color printer. It came up black and white. And you used it. And then it tracks you back to there. They check the security cameras and bang, you're Done. caught. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Some right. people will say, well, maybe you shouldn't be stealing documents, but. I don't know, you know, by and large, that's probably true. But they are, as we have documented on this here show, there is a time and a place for those these activities. Yeah, if you're revealing um, illegal activities. Mm. Yeah, turns out that there's a, you know, a public interest in these sorts of things. Yes. Perhaps not always like, you know, there's, you know, this case in, in particular maybe talks a little bit about that, but. It is always funny how it you know it highlights something we hadn't talked much about. I guess that brings us back to stenography in general. Did you want to talk uh, yes. more about that? Um, yes, it was years ago that I heard. Um, I heard we're going to have another. Um, um, post. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 
there is another link in here about um, how they wound up hiding messages in pornography. <laughs> nice. Basically, they they captured a, a known terrorist, and on this laptop, they found um, a porno video. And within that video, they discovered 141 separate text files. You know, thing, things like um, um, future operations, lessons learned, uh, reports on operations, stuff like that. So, I... I, I I've heard of this before, where basically you have a photograph, you go in and you flip one bit in, in every pixel, and that becomes your message. And so whatever the, the value of that pixel is all the way through the photo, that becomes your message. So your first eight pixels ha have a full byte. Now, it's kind of obvious when you look at the photo that something's been done with it when you compare it to other photographs. But the beauty of it is, is you can just wind up uploading images to any number of social media websites and everyone else that has to read the message can also get the message through social media websites. And there's no way to track who's looking at this. It's not like you've emailed them or anything directly. You just posted it and someone else has read it. Mm -hmm. And when it's in amongst all that noise, there's no way to track one right. person to the other. Millions of get requests for this one random image, you know, mm -hmm. that's been CDN hosted and distributed. And Yep. And in the show notes, you'll find a link to a photograph. When you look at the photograph, you can see all this little noise, all these little artifacts left over from the steganography. But this is just a rough version of steganography. You can get much more elaborate ones that it doesn't really show. You know, like look at look at the sky in the first photo compared to the sky below. It 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 it's a solid color all the way across in the bottom photograph, but in there you can see this sort of noisy bit. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if a photograph is half downloaded. Remember those days when the photograph used to display on your. Uh, in your web browser, slowly, you could see it unfolding as it downloaded oh, it. Oh, the dark times. Yes. Before broadband saved us all. Now, I remember hearing stories about steganography. Say that six more times. Yes. In photos uh, five or ten years ago or something like that. And I remember talking to someone whose job it was to find find these people. And they, they were saying, yeah, that's that's astounding. I don't know how we can deal with that at all. But yeah, it, it is sort of weird um, that something like that can be so obvious, yet so easy to do. Like Hiding it in photographs seems to be the best way to do it because you don't have to do it in every photograph. You don't even have to decide in advance where the photograph is going to be. Um, right. You one can have of the, telltale one, signs that, you know, process whatever photographs, and then if you find yep. it, then there you go. You get the information. Yep. Uh, later on, we'll find a way, uh, uh, we'll show another way that they, they were using photographs for a di different, in fact, it's the next article. Once we get to that, there's another, there's a command and control bit for some bots about um, how they use photographs for the same thing slightly differently yeah it's fascinating and that uh, you know that that previous article there 
it's worth checking out. It kind of goes into some of the some of the math behind it and some of the more sophisticated uh, ways mm-hmm. of hiding information. It's really it's really quite interesting from a math perspective. And actually, it was one of the first things I remember trying out. I think on a Linux distribution years ago uh, was I was kind of playing with that because it, uh, you know, there's like a command line tool that made it super easy to just go download it in the shell and then, um, you know, input like a text message and it would go hide it in your image for you. I remember thinking like, oh, wow, this is this is really neat. Uh, so could you could you see the change in the photo? You know, I think I ended up putting in it was a I think it was basically doing this simple simple yeah. version. So for like small yeah. ones, like a, you know, like a small sentence, not it didn't didn't really. But if you tried to put like a bigger file in there, then yeah, it was it looked pretty much yeah. like this sample. Well, if you've got these huge photos, like it, I know in today's modern era, you know, where there's like people are uploading and backing up all their smartphone pictures and their multiple megabytes, yeah. that's there's a lot of room for you know just some and, secret text and you don't have to do every every byte as well right you, you can, can have some it. you can have a predetermined code as to how many bytes you use and where they are and make it as sparse as you want yeah wow. and then it's very difficult to pick up i would imagine yeah it sounds kind of fun i wonder if i can go find another uh an easy tool if i do i'll put it in the show notes you can send yeah. you can you can send us your steganography samples. We'll put it in the feedback and uh, see if we can find the code. <laughs> don't send us the message. Yeah, don't photograph. send us the message. Uh, that's great. All right. Well, uh, before we move on, anything else you want to add about steganography or uh, that? that um, no, no. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Well, if that's got you a little freaked out about all things paper, then uh, you should just go digital. Go digital. Maybe you've already maybe you already started that trip. Anything you have, you have a device, bring it over to our first sponsor. That's right. Our friends over at Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com to get started with mobile that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. I'll say it again. Mobile that makes sense. Ting is a smarter way to do mobile. With the average bill just $23 a month, a line starts at just $6 a month. And then guess what? You just pay for what you use. Yeah, it's as simple as that. You use some minutes? That's... You just pay for those minutes. Head on over to their rates page, techsnap.ting.com slash rates. There you'll find this fun little interactive chart. You can play with it. Line start, $6 a month, one, two, three, four, however many you need. It's a great option. Maybe you run in a small business. Maybe you have a nanny. You just want them to have an extra line. Or you're you know you're worried about a, a grandparent or a family member. You can get them a line just to know that you can always reach them when you need to. At $6 a month, it really changes the, the math on that. You don't have to worry about some family plan where you have a giant number of shared minutes and you're really constricted no if you need more minutes at ting you just you just use more minutes maybe you don't use any minutes guess what that's going to be zero dollars per month yeah zero dollars you don't use any you don't use any text messages that's zero dollars per month as well and you know probably your text app viewers will probably use some megabytes but you're savvy you're wi-fi savvy if you're that savvy you're going to pay $22 a month. But that gets you all the features. You get three-way calling. You get tethering. You get voicemail. You get no contracts, no early termination fees. And whenever you want, you don't have to change your plans. You don't have to do anything fancy. You don't have to you know, call up your rep and beg them to not charge you an overage fee. No, none of that. If you need to use more that month, you just use more. You need to use less, use less. None of this signing up for a contract where you have to estimate your maximum usage for the contract terms uh, and then make sure you get something that's at least a little bit over that to play it safe but not too far under that you you know you won't have enough no that's why ting is mobile that makes sense plus ting they're they're like us you know they're nerds they're geeks they're conscious about security they don't have to worry about doing all of these you know building 
building lines because they're a reseller. They they have both GCM and CDMA, so they've got all the lines you need. You can bring your own phone or head on over to their store. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit that will either cover probably more than your first month if you're anything like me or use that in the shop. Go pick up a brand new iPhone 7. Yeah, they got those over there. Uh, you can go get yourself a, a SIM card. A Motorola G4, a pretty good deal at only $154. They've got financing that's available if you need it. Or bring your own device. Tink supports both the GSM and CDMA. It's really easy to get started. They make it super available, and it's only $6 a month. So go to techsnap.ting.com. Let them know that you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. And go get on a wireless carrier that won't make you hate yourself. It's really it's really that simple. They've got a great app, they've got a great web dashboard, and they've got real humans with real customer service. I think you'll like it a lot. TechSnap.ting.com All right. Well then, you promised. Now you're going to deliver. You'll never guess where Russian spies are hiding their control servers. You know what? I don't I I haven't guessed. I'm just going to let I'm just going to let you tell us. <laughs> well, First, let's talk about what command and control is used for. Most of the exploits that we've talked about are to gain complete control over someone's computer. And why do you want to gain complete control? Um, You know, you might be trying to get something out of their bank account, something like that, but that's not always big enough. Sometimes you want to use their computer to launch an attack on other people. but you've got all these computers. You're not connected to them directly. No, you can't. You can't do that um, because it doesn't scale. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of of compromised machines all within one botnet. Uh, so what you have is you have a command and control channel. And back when it was simple, they would just, you know, I, I've seen them spring up on IRC where you go right. into a channel and there's all this weird crap coming in where somebody will mess it. There's, there's hundreds of people on this channel and they're all spouting out what looks like absolute <laughs> rubbish. People. Yeah. And then somebody else pipes up and it's totally different from all the other stuff. And basically IRC is being used as a command and control channel. So what they have here is uh, the the problem with having a public command and c- control channel is once it's known what it is, they just shut it down. Right, it's really easy to shut down or monitor or whatever. Yeah, it's some it, it's some website. It's an RSC channel, something like that. You just you block pull, it. You get yeah, in you touch pull with the, the RSC or whatever. Yep. So what these folks are doing is they decided that they would use comments on photographs. In this case, it happened to be a, a Britney Spears photograph huh. on her Instagram account. And let, let, let's talk a little bit about the group that they are referring to. So this is from antivirus uh, provider ESET. I hope that's it might might be ESET, but yeah, let's try ESET because ESET would be two S's. So. They're talking about a group called Turla, which is a Russian-speaking hacking group. And basically, they uh, created something called WhipBot that infiltrated the Windows-based systems of embassies and governments of multiple European countries. I I think we talked about this about two months ago. 
many of them former Eastern Bloc nations. Then a few months later, at Kaspersky, they discovered an extremely stealthy Linux backdoor that was used in the same campaign, a finding that showed that it was much broader than previously believed because the first time they only found um, Whipbot, they didn't find this uh, um, uh, stealthy Linux backdoor. So... Turla has also been known to use satellite-based internet connections to cover its tracks. I'm not sure how that will help them cover their tracks because it's still just an ISP, isn't it? Unless they're renting, ha hacking into existing communications, but I don't think they're doing that. So in March, researchers observed Turla using what was then a zero-day vulnerability in Windows to infiltrate European government military computers. We already talked about that. It almost sounds like the previous one that they mentioned first. But So, about this particular um, very ingenious solution. Basically, what the malware would do is it would go and look for a comment. It would look at all the comments it's very misleading the, the way they're, that they've written it. And this is almost a direct copy and paste from, from the um, original document. But we'll go into uh, the original document and show you Ooh. how what they have here is slightly different from what is actually on this page. Um, they haven't done their HTML5 very well. Um, they've missed some stuff that makes this more interesting. So basically what they do is they look for a comment and then they compute a hash value on that comment, and it's a it's a custom hash algorithm, so it's not like an MD5 or something like that. If the hash happens to match 183, it then runs a regular expression on the comment in order to obtain the full path of the bit.ly URL. If you're not familiar with bit.ly, bit.ly's a, a URL shortener. Instead of pasting a very long URL into, say, a Twitter Posts, that's where I think Bitly came from, was Twitter. They would then, you then get a shortened URL that you can put in a Twitter post and you have more, more room for text. So, if you, the URL, the regex is supplied here in the, in, in the post. Ooh, but yeah, look at that. If you, if you run that, if you run the comment in question through this regex, you wind up getting this URL. And I'm sure it's just the, the, the 2KD at the end. And now, if you look down a little bit later to where it starts saying Smith 2155, just a little bit further down, they try to say that you can see this character precedes each character that makes the path of the bit.ly URL. What they've done is they've interspersed regular text with a non-printable uh, Unicode character. Um, but... If you look there and look at what they're coming up with, it doesn't make any sense. So let's jump to the next article and scroll down until you see uh, Britney Spears' photograph again. It's two-thirds of the way down. Keep going. This isn't it. Yep. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. A little bit further, you'll see Smith there. You see Smith right there? No. Go up a bit. It's right there, Smith oh, yeah, 2155. You can see the 200D uh, characters in there. So what you do is you take the 200, 
you take the character immediately after the 200D and put that into the URL. So there's the 2, the K, the D, the H, the U, the, oh, yeah. the mm -hmm. capital H. Yeah, so that's how it all comes out. Now, they just fail. They just... The previous article is treating these uh, curly brace, 200D, close, and not curly brace, bracket, trying less than, greater than. The previous article is treating those as HTML tags and not rendering them. I went, went in and looked at it, and I couldn't actually see it there, so maybe they fixed it up or something, but it, it's kind of misleading in the original article. So after they found this URL, they... they, they Bitly keeps track of how many times they've had to give out the long URL for the short URL you provide. So, in effect, when you go to the, this URL, Bitly will redirect you. I think it's an Apache 301 or is it a 403? It's, it's a redirect code. It's a, it's a standard HTTP. Yep, thank you. Redirect. So, what they do is they say, I'm sorry, you're at the wrong place. Where you want to go is over here. And it's just built into um, the HTTP protocol. But Bitly is able to keep track of how many times this happens, and they found out that there were only 17 visits uh -huh. for this one URL. So they reckon this, was, this wasn't really command and control. It was just for testing. Mm -hmm. um, but this is one way to do command and control all sort of hidden-like. Huh. This is fascinating, yeah. That kind and it'd of, be fast, too. I mean, it takes a long time to talk about and explain, but it'd be very fast. Right. Certainly certainly fast enough for any, you know, most of your practical needs. It's not like you need, you know, millisecond latencies on any of this as long as you mm -hmm. can, you know, make a yeah. comment somewhere and go out and disseminate and then everything just mm -hmm. works. Wow. And now the thing to keep in mind is why they're using social media here is because, again, it'll get lost. Yep. Unless you're blocking traffic to Instagram at work or at home, you're gonna the command and control will work. It'll just get through and get out and, and you're it done. It looks like traffic from a legitimate user. Mm -hmm. People post dumb weird stuff on yeah. the internet all yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah. And besides, um, all you have to do is embed the URL, like they said, the URL identifier somewhere in the statement and then just put a non printable character behind <laughs> each one that doesn't make sense anyway. But now that you think of it, you see crap like this on on most YouTube videos as well. Yeah, you do. All over most you know public comments on the internet. Huh. They're really just it's you know it's like uh, using a comment system as a as like a weird database front end, which is what it is anyway. You've heard of numbers channels? No, I haven't. Radio, ra radio stations that just read out numbers. So you have uh, someone there. Yeah, okay, I've heard of the concept, not the term. 43, 28, and they've existed for, for many years, and they're usually used to communicate to secret networks. Mm -hmm. And you can find them on shortwave. They're, they're digital. Oh, uh, some of them are very well known. Um, this is just a different kind of numbers channel. Yeah, it, it really it, is that. Huh. We just have, it's a little harder to tune in on it unless you're looking for yeah. it. Yeah. Um, if you have a friend with a ham radio or something like that, 
you can usually jump on the internet and and find a numbers uh, channel. Uh, find out where a numbers channel is on shortwave, and then just tune into it. Uh, I think Cuba runs one, I th- or used to run one. I know Russia still mm-hmm. runs one. That's fascinating. But it's very interesting to hear them. And you say, what the hell are they doing? And who are they talking to? And who's listening? Yeah, exactly. Um, Makes you wonder. Now, have I told you before how my dad worked for uh, military communications? No, you have not. Please and do. And back at that time, what you would do is you, um, this is during the Cold War, uh, yes, mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. What you do is you'd have a sender here and a receiver here and all day long they would send noise to each other and so when it was time to send a message you just slip the message into the noise and it would just be transmitted over and anyone listening it still looks like noise mm. so how did they tell instead the of having sorry how did they tell the difference ah they have printed cards holes on them or marks somehow and you put the same card in both machines at either end every day so it's like one off encryption pads ah yeah okay one time pad type situation interesting right so this thing knows what it's sending this thing knows what the noise is Mm -hmm. and so the message comes in it just cancels out all the noise and if it's zero, 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 when it cancels out all the noise, it says there's no message. And all of a sudden, it gets these, this data coming thing. Oh, there's a message. I'll record it. And note it comes. Oh, fascinating. And these boxes were maybe maybe the size of a large microwave oven. Mm-hmm. And the cards were treated very securely. And when you went to eject the card in the morning to put a new card in, it would cut it in half. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Totally. We're done and, with that. Um, yeah. Um, my dad wound up installing these at various places. Uh, I know he ins- installed them like uh, Prime Minister's Residence, uh, NASA headquarters, not, not NASA, NATO headquarters or something, mm. Prime Minister's House, did I say Prime Minister's House? Um, various yeah. government and official installations. Yeah. It was really interesting. Yeah, that does sound nice. So you just you know you have, you've got your stack of these encryption codes, and you you put one the one in for today or whatever length of time, and yeah, you can yeah, transmit. We went and we looked up the the machines on the uh, on Wikipedia. You see photographs of them, and somewhere else we we found uh, user manuals for them. These are top of the line things produced by the NSA at the time. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Nowadays, I don't think they're so good. Anyway, we're <laughs> no, way off track. Probably not. All right. Um, anything more you want to add about Turla and their uh, their findings here? Um, no. Uh, the, yes. This kind of command and control center is virtually impossible to stop because it's just you go out there, you fi- find the photograph you need, and then away you go. Um, it, it's very difficult to find out how how it's working because, you know, it's just hidden in all this other traffic. Because, yeah, you get a lot of traffic coming out of your office going to Instagram, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't have to be Instagram. It could be any commonly, you know, Facebook, yep. Twitter, Facebook. really yep. really whatever. Yep. Comments that, on a that, blog. 
that cooking Facebook group is actually doing command and control for a network of bots. You can compromise a WordPress server and then use their comment section as your... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Crazy. Yep. All right. Well, uh, you know, if this kind of sounds fun to you, you're interested in figuring out how you can automate this kind of things, tap into social media APIs to send secret communications, you're going to need someplace to do that dev work. I suggest our friends over at DigitalOcean.com. Yeah, that's right. DigitalOcean, cloud computing designed for developers. They make it super simple to spin up a new VPS of your dreams. It takes less than 55 seconds. You've got your choice of a range of popular OSs, including FreeBSD. Yeah, there's a bunch of Debian, Fedora, CentOS, Container Linux, and they work closely with these distributions to ensure that you're getting you know faithful distributions, official images. They're updated right away. They've done a lot of great work with FreeBSD Project to make sure that FreeBSD runs beautifully on DigitalOcean service. They use first-class KVM hypervisor. Yeah, that's right. You know it and love it from Linux. And they've just introduced some new killer features, things like cloud firewalls. Now you can easily secure your droplets at no additional cost. You can stop mucking about with IP tables rules and use their easy API or UI or, hey, some of the apps as well. Uh, can configure your firewall, make sure that traffic from those botnets we were just discussing doesn't hit your precious servers. To get started, you can use our promo code SNAPOcean, one word, SNAPOcean. That'll get you a $10 credit. And when you check out DigitalOcean's pricing, you'll realize, hey, that's a great deal. Prices start at just $5 a month. For that, you get 512 MB of RAM, one core processor, 20 gigs of all SSD disk, and a whopping terabyte of transfer. Yeah, you heard me right, a full terabyte. And they've got 40 gigabit E right to those KVM hypervisors. So this is this is serious bandwidth here. We're not talking about some like terabyte of transfer that you'll never be able to use because things are so slow. Now, anytime, you know, whenever I'm on one of my DigitalOcean droplets and I do an apt-get update or I'm installing some other some software package, I'm always blown away. It installs so fast. I'm never waiting around for downloads. You'll have that same experience. It really is great network, great transfer. They've done a beautiful job. If you follow them on social media, I mean, maybe you're a bot. If not, if you follow their social media accounts, you'll see some of the beautiful racks they've got. They've got some lovely data centers, and they're probably opening new data centers near you all the time. They've got them all over the world. Frankfurt, Toronto. I just saw Block Storage is now available in their Toronto data center. So they've, they've got those features that you need, Block Storage, things like monitoring, load balancers. It's really all there. And they've got hourly pricing. I love this one. You're just trying to play with a new idea. I was just playing with uh, setting up a Kubernetes cluster over the weekend. And where did I do it? I did it on DigitalOcean because it's so easy. You spin up spin up five nodes, get, get some nice ones over here. Oh, yeah, look at this one. The uh, $6 an hour, four gigs memory, two core processor, four terabytes of transfer. It's a pretty sweet spot. So you get them however long you need them. Play with them for a couple hours. You're going to spend less than a dollar. It's really worth it. And you have this whole environment you can destroy, recreate it, learn, practice. It's an awesome resource. And because they get the community, they have real editors on hand to turn community documentation into some of the best documentation you're going to find on the internet. Show that you appreciate all that they do by using our promo code SNAPOcean and go to DigitalOcean.com today and get yourself a brand new VPS. Thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Alrighty, that brings us to the next and I think final topic of the main segment today. What do you have for us? Well, it was, oh, which night was this? This would have been 
I think uh, that it was Friday night at BSD Can, okay. which is the first full day of talks. I was sitting in the Hacker Lounge, um, and all around me, people were laughing. Every once in a while, like there'd be some laughter and Just stuff like that. A little like giggle that. here or there. But, yeah. And later on, I learned what it was. They were they had just created LibTrue, uh, which is a library um, for truth, basically. Okay. Uh, and it turns out that it's actually a very useful project, and it's going to wind up, no doubt, being imported into just about every OS out there. I can I can I can see it happening. Uh, well, I, you have piqued my curiosity here, sir. Please go on. Okay, so the project seems very well uh, coordinated. Uh, I, I was, yeah, I was actually sitting two people away from Andrew when he started started uh, importing this. I think I'm gonna have to check the logs, but it's only four days old, so that sort of matches up with Friday, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Yeah, that, that's right. So they must have been doing this work while I was sitting around them. That's awesome. And I'm very proud to uh, sort of not been a part of it, but sort of there when Be it happened. Around it as it happened. Yeah. 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 So You're the headline of lib, you know GitHub libtrue libtrue is you can't handle the truth. <laughs> Beautiful. And as you can see, if you scroll all the way down, it's currently building on FreeBSD 10.3. On uh, twelve current on FreeBSD current, and it's also going through the Travis CI. I forget what CI stands for. Continuous uh, integration. Thank you, sir. That's the second time I've forgotten that acronym in the past few months, few few weeks. I mean, it could be so, chief investigator. There's a lot of there mm-hmm, things there. So, mm-hmm. so if you click on the next link and go to true.xyz, you can see that they've got something there that was created by GitHub Pages. Now, the even next link, uh, that, that's back into libtrue, sorry. Uh, not long afterwards, a port was created on, on uh, fresh ports. And that was the 10th, no, that was, that was the next day. It wound up getting into the um, FreeBSD ports tree the next day. Um, the project... <coughs> Pardon me, I think I'm coming back to Philadelphia after being away for a while. I think my allergies have just kicked in full, so it's really hard to um, breathe at times. <laughs> yeah, now totally. We well, appreciate the next you sticking it out. Thank you. The next page you've got here, they actually have a code of conduct for this project, which is very important. You've got to have a code of conduct these days. Everyone is doing that. So the next project, uh, the n- next link, though, is um, uh, record not found. Record not found is actually found that there's 34 watchers on GitHub for a project that only started four days ago. Wow! Yeah, that's some good. Uh, that's some good momentum they've got going. Now the other thing to look at though is there's 58 issues open. Uh-oh. I want to know what they're doing about that. There's been 49 commits. Actually, now there's only 54 issues, and they're they're talking about. Um, Th- these are ver- very good issues as well, like Haskell bindings. Yep, Someone you, wants you to get that. the Haskell bindings. No going. tests. So, bas- yeah, and, but you know, there's no support for faults. It's only true. <laughs> they want to do a REST rewrite. Um, That's also like, very th- impo- in vogue yes, these days. Yes, yes. Now, way, way, way down, they want to ha- add in uh, Kerberos support. 
which is a very good idea. Why isn't this a dockerized microservice? Yes, LibTruth as a service. That's the next one. Yes. Um, we can spin that up now, on a DigitalOcean droplet right now. They need an RSC or an RFD yeah. uh, proposal process. And what about on a network? It's not guaranteed on a network. And like someone mentioned, uh, BSD star.make is not portable. These are fun issues. I like this a lot. We need multi-threaded truth. Amen. Now, um, truth handling as a service is also very important. You yeah. already mentioned that, didn't you? Yes. Now, one, one of the things, uh, accessibility. They've raised accessibility as being an issue. Now, someone actually denies that truth is not the answer. They're saying truth is not the answer. Now, on the next page, there's another very important thing. But what is truth? So, they're questioning the entire <laughs> foundation of the project. Um, someone pointed out there's no, neither Ruby nor Python support in this project. And that's really got to get fixed in a hurry. Um, now, someone actually said that the install was broken. Now, I didn't look at that issue before to find, oh, yeah, uh, it's still open. I don't know what they're doing. If the install's broken and it's only four days old, how they committed this? Uh, someone wants systemd support, and I don't see how that's going to happen because this is all about the truth. Uh, I see someone wants a JavaScript version. I can't see that happening. And someone's taking question with, with the license. They want an Apache 2 license. Is it BSD licensed, I assume? Uh, I believe it is. If I go see. back, yes, it's two two clause, two clause BSD. I think. Okay. Now, um, believe it or not, there's actually a, a, a subreddit dedicated to this. <laughs> oh, that's great! Already. Oh yeah, here we go. Boom. That's reddit.com/r/libdrew. Yes. So. I think you can see why this is going to be really popular. And I think you can see why there's going to be a lot of people wanting to get truth into their projects as well. And I can see other projects incorporating truth into their projects. And I can see a lot of operating systems incorporating truth into their projects as well. So I'm very proud that this came out of BSG CAN 2017. Oh, it's got capsicum support too. I didn't. I didn't even see that, but I see some does capsicum it, stuff it? at least in one of Where the. Where is uh, this? Is true? Maybe not, but I use it. It uh, says with uh, cap capsicum. Maybe optional. I was looking at uh, true dot c over here. Oh, uh, hold on. Look at the other. Uh, and they have a Python. They have add Python bindings for fast lib true access. <laughs> so you have to compile like native bindings. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, oh, they have the uh, they have website as a submodule. Oh yeah, return yeah. You see libtrue slash libtrue.github.io. Oh, this is amazing. I love it. This is a lot of work. Oh shoot, see. Oh, beautiful. Look at that. That's pure simplicity at its heart. There's not much to it. No, there's not. In fact, I think there might be more make file building code associated with than actual application code in this case. Have you looked at the actual libtrue true true dot c? Yeah, it's beautiful. Yep. That is good. Oh yeah, you, you said the with capsicum and uh, open container as well. Closed container. 
I'm sure you're going to start using this soon, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to get get work involved with this. As soon as there's that, uh, you know, as soon as there's a web API that I can uh, that I can call, mm-hmm. that'll well, be. Well, wasn't there an issue? Yeah, I think there was. Maybe I can uh, contribute something there. Fine. I mean, web. they've got the uh, Python support, so we just add a little like a uh, little API. Little yeah, well, there's HTTP three pages server. of issues here. I think there's something wrong here. Well, to be fair, the first issue raised was documentation. Yeah, right. So there might be some issues that are covered that would be covered by that documentation if it existed. Get some yes. man pages going. That would be that would be useful. I can see questions arising on Stack Overflow about this. Mm-hmm. Proper use of libdrew. Yes. Yes. Oh wait, did we look at the closed? issues uh, you know the closed issues maybe well here's one there was no port there is no code of conduct they wanted to move the repo oh yeah faster they lib true nice. to be under github lib true that's right yep awesome libxo right. support yes looks like they're making some pretty rapid progress then i'm impressed i'm impressed as well this is only for Excuse me, four days yeah. worth of work. Already six contributors? Yes. Yep. Five pull requests. So are we going to see your name in there, Mr. Probably. Mr. Dan? Probably. There are 16 forks of it already, so I'm <laughs> sort of worried about, you know, am I too late? Yeah, right. Exactly. I'm sure we'll see this, uh, you know, in, in all sorts of upstream projects. Very soon. Very soon. Um, there'll be a uh, free software licensed clone of it at some point, I'm sure. What do you mean free software? Well, someone's going to want a GPL version that they can have. Uh, maybe. GNU true, that's what they'll call it. <laughs> who, who knows? Uh, that's awesome that you got to see the birth of that. I'm, uh, I'm, we'll, have to, we'll have to check back in regularly and uh, see, how that, see, how it, see how it grows. I agree. This is a big deal. Anything else you want to add about our friend LibTrue? The truth is out there. Exactly. That's what you'll be saying after we talk about our final sponsor. That's right. That's our friends over at IX Systems. IX Systems, they've got they've got the one true solution to your hardware provider needs. That's right. Don't get stuck with one of these big box providers where you have to shop online and make guesswork out of your important infrastructure infrastructure buying process. No. No. My friends, head on over to ihexsystems.com. There you will find amazing custom machines powered by incredible Intel processors. They've got a team of talented, highly trained, technically expert sales engineers waiting to talk to you, waiting to pamper you, waiting to make sure that you understand that IX Systems, they know. They know your business is important. They know your project's important. They know you're important. And they know your server's important. They want your server experience to be custom, to be top-notch. They are going to work hard with you to make sure that you get exactly the right server, NAS, storage solution, whatever you may need. They'll make sure that it works for you for the first time the right way. It could, it really, it really couldn't be easier. If you're like me, you'll be a little confused the first time you talk with IX if you haven't already. If you go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, you'll, you'll get a great guide. It's, a, it's an awesome guide to buying hardware for open source software. It really highlights IX has been in this game for a while. They've seen the dot-com, you know, the dot-com booms come and go, and they've, they've weathered those waters. They're really experts in open source software, whether, whether that be, you know, a BSD or a Linux distribution or, hey, maybe, maybe even Windows, whatever works. 
They've seen it all. They've worked with a ton of awesome clients, you know, from small businesses to giant government agencies to uh, monolith enterprises that uh, run the world. IX has seen it. They built petabyte arrays. Really go check out some of their some of their their blog posts. You'll they hi- they do a great job of highlighting some of the awesome projects they've worked at, and it really shows you the confidence that these you know they've seen the your problems before. They have the trained staff to make sure that you get the right solution. They'll work with you. Go check out the free Nest Mini. I mean, if you if you're just like you know I don't really have the storage I want. Sure could use a little bit extra storage at home. There's really no better solution. It's super handsome. You can build your own if you want. Yep, they totally support that. FreeNAS, open source. Great project. You can build your own. Or it's just, you know, it's just so cute. It comes with expandable drive bays. You can you can swap things in. And IX really takes care of you. You know, they, they make sure that any hard drives you get, yeah, they, they, they burn and tested them. It's white glove service. They really, they know. You don't want to have to get your device and then have to replace a hard drive right away. No, that's crazy sauce. <sighs> Look at that thing. Maybe your needs are a little bit more than that. Maybe what you need is the True Rack. I gotta say, I drool over the True Rack just about just about every week. Whenever I go to the Ag System page, powerful, flexible rack scale architecture that takes the guesswork out of building large scale data center applications. So, if you're in the position you're building out, you're expanding AWS. It's just too expensive. You want to work on your own cloud. Ag System is a great choice for you. Or you just need a new server. Maybe you're doing you know some machine learning. Maybe you just need a new NAS for your home office. IX Systems is a great partner to work with. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Share that guide with anyone you know, whether it be yourself or someone at the company you work for who's in the position to think about buying some new hardware and recommend it to your friends. Thank you very much to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap today to get some very sexy new hardware. And that brings us today's feedback, the time in the show where we take time to respond to you, our beloved audience. That's right. You can you can reach us at the subreddit. You can reach us at the jb.com, jupiterbroadcasting.com contact form, or you can reach us on Twitter. Those addresses will be later in the show. But people have already sent us feedback. Yeah, that's right. That's why we love you guys oh so much. Let's get to it. First up, we've yep. got a letter from our friend Marco. He's asking about quadrupled photographs. Hello. I'm a teacher in primary school. Because nobody did it, I slowly evolved into an IT administrator. Ah, I think that's a very sympathetic story, Marco. A lot of people end up in that, you know, you have a little skill or you've developed some skill and you're forced to wear more hats than you might otherwise want to. Uh, Mostly, he says, mostly I learn as I go and from mistakes. Amen. Before my question, I would like to say that I also agree with the previous listener. Dan, you have a great personality, as seen on TechSnap, and I would also love to hear a deep dive on IPv6, especially the advantages and differences. That sounds like something we can do, definitely. Mm-hmm. Here is my situation. Users started to complain that computers are running low on free space. I, I took a look at it and found this mess. Users were taking photos and videos, and after every event, they copied all photos and videos to a computer. The problem occurred when the same images and videos became duplicated, tripled, and quadrupled. Here's how they did it. First, they took photos and copied them to a computer, to a folder, DCIM. All right, so we've got image 001, image 002, Uh and image 003. Then they took more photos and copied all photos to a different folder on the same computer. Ah, see, here we go. We've we've got another copy of 001, 002, 003, and now we've got 004 and 005. 
and so on. Every once in a while, somebody emptied the memory card in the camera, so naming of new photos started from the beginning. Ooh, ouch. Sometimes the camera wasn't used for so for a long time, so that the battery completely drained, so the date on the camera reset, and the date of the photo became being taken was wrong. And they did this on several computers. I would like to remove duplicate photos and videos, but based only on content, not date or file name, which are both wrong. Can this be done on FreeNAS or v- Vanilla FreeBSD or Ubuntu Linux? Thanks for the information. Keep on with the great work. Hey, thank you, Marco. That's a really great question. And a very nicely detailed and set up uh, email there makes it pretty easy for us to read mm-hmm. and to answer. So yeah. we really appreciate that. Uh, before I, my initial thought was hash. Mm-hmm. You do a SHA, an MD5 or a SHA 512. You, you might as well just use a very quick hash. Yeah, right. The quickest hash you can find. And basically what that'll do is that'll give you a, a number or a string, which is usually unique for everything you do. So you have a document, you take a, a hash of that document, and that checksum is a fixed value. You right. change anything in that document, that checksum will change. So if you just ran a checksum over each one of these files, you would find out the identical ones and the ones with the same hash are definitely identical and you can just delete them. If they have different hashes, it doesn't mean that they're not, they could still be identical. Say perhaps one bit got flipped or something like that, but we're going to assume that the the photographs are, that the files are untouched. They, They represent the photograph that was actually taken. So, you could write a script, do an MD5 over all the files. Um, I, I would then um, output a, out, at the end output a list of the, the duplicates you found and said, hey, you can delete all this. But first you got to write the code, then you got to debug the code and stuff like that, and you might make mistakes. So while you were talking, I Googled for identifying duplicate photos and there's lots of free software out there to do just this for you um i found something called uh just posts that referred to something called awesome photo identifier awesome duplicate photo finder and there's very you know i think this one is for pc there's some for mac so i would just find one uh say you're on a mac download it from the app store but use one of these tools Uh, don't write the code yourself because it'll just be too much help but um, yeah that would help a lot Rikai pointed us at uh, an, another program option. Here he pointed us to fdupes. Is a, it's a program for identifying and deleting duplicate files residing within specified directories. Looks mm-hmm. like it's pretty widely mm-hmm. installed on various places. Here's a, an Ubuntu man page, for instance. So that's a, another helpful one. Looks like there's a lot of pretty good options for that, which is nice. Uh, uh- we don't know what OS. He did not mention the OS, did he? He mentioned, can this be done on FreeNAS or Linux, Ubuntu? But I'm not sure what OS. Right, yeah. But uh, hopefully, as long as it's not Windows anyway, it looks like there's a lot of options. But there might be Windows as well. And I'm sure there's there's probably some programs there as well. Maybe Marco can send us a follow-up letter to tell us you know, what solution yes. he found, what he went with, and how it went. 
Yes, please. Th- this is very interesting. I totally um, sympathize with that. Like, and, oh my gosh, this uh, is such. I a know mess. I've got this problem on some of mine as well. Yeah. Ugh. Yikes. Um, th- this this feedback question came some time ago, and I've put it off because this was I wanted to think about it for a little while. I don't remember when it came in, but I'm sure it was before we did the. I'm sure it was before May 17th. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, on to the next one then. Thank you very much, Marco, and uh, let us know how it goes. Next Thank up, you. we've got a letter from Gary. Gary writes to us about an Apple laptop repair place. Hey, Dan. I'm only, on one of the tech snap shows, you mentioned that you got your Apple laptop repaired. Would you mm-hmm. be kind enough to share the place where you had that work done at? Thanks much, um, Gary. Yes, I'm using that laptop right now. This laptop over here that's streaming the video is a brand new laptop. And the laptop that I'm using here in the big screen is my old 2011 MacBook Pro. And this screen is incredibly, the graphic output is is just wonderful. Um, what had happened is that the video chip died. And so I took it apart and shipped it up, shipped the main board off to uh, a place out on the west coast of the US and they fixed it by replacing the video chip entirely and sent it back to me and it's working great. I guess I've had it for about two months now. It's wonderful. If you go on eBay, look for the user brick fence, all one word. There's a there'll be a link in the show notes. Um, they've got 393 positive feedbacks and in another week or so they'll have mine as well and I highly recommend them they did great pre-sale conversation with me about my original query and I said listen do you need me to take this off do you need me to take that off have I chosen the right service for the problem I'm demonstrating great customer interactions use them awesome okay hey that's great you've delivered exactly on that request thank you very much mr dan that's it's kind of a it's like a neat idea you know you send off your uh, your laptop to the care of the internet and it sends you back a fixed laptop i mean there's like you know yeah. some money that gets exchanged and in theory it's a person doing the work but really <coughs> it's the internet Pardon. well what I like about it is this person has certain skills and the people always have broken laptops and this person yeah. knows exactly how to fix them, has the right equipment, and there's no other way for you to find this person except over the internet. Yeah, exactly. It allows you, you know, unless you happen to like, yep, I have, I have this friend who fixes stuff. If you're, Unless you're in that friend group, then you're out of luck. But yeah, exactly. The internet allows us to have that kind of information freely yeah. at hand. Someone did recommend a group in New York City for, for, for this repair, but I happened to stumble across these guys on eBay, and it just made sense, and I'm very pleased. Awesome. And and it comes with a six-month warranty. Oh, hey, even better. Great. Okay, on to our final piece of feedback tonight. We've got a letter from David. David writes to us about a low-power PFSense and PFSense 2.5. I'm slowly convincing myself to put together a small PFSense firewall. I originally wanted to do some eBay hunting, but I keep picturing the electricity bill for running a 24-7 EU pricing. So I've arrived at an embedded infrastructure. 
But just in time, there was some news about PFSense that in the future it will require AESNI to be present. Um, which, if, for people who don't know, that's a you know an accelerated instruction in the CPU for doing AES. Uh, well, certain classes of it, anyway. Uh, this kind of gets important, as I would like to access part of the network through OpenVPN, including the NAS, maybe some intelligent home devices, temp readings, fish tank control, etc. So given a power consumption limit, and let's say a noise limit, in your experience, would an Atom-based solution be sufficient with four NICs on board, or should I just get a Pentium or Core-based single NIC board and hunt for used two-port server NIC, one for the LAN and one for the DMZ? I simply don't think that the ARM NetGate appliance is sufficient and the Atom-based ones are too expensive. Right now, the only thing I expect out, really, is a used 1U mini chassis and that I, that I might, might replace the fans for silent ones. But really, any idea helps at this point. Thanks, and keep up the good show. David. P.S. If you want to suggest alternatives, running something 24-7 will cost roughly $3 per watt per year over here and assume a three-year usage for the total cost of ownership. Hey, also nicely spelled out. Thank you for the detailed letter. What do you think about that, Mr. Dan? $3 a watt. Yeah. Where is he from? I'm not sure. Because $3 a watt, if I'm running 100 watt, that's 300 bucks a year. I, I don't know. Anyway, but that's not the point. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's thinking of getting a 1U mini chassis. A 1U mini chassis is still a rack mount, isn't it? I'm not familiar with a 1U mini chassis. I think so. <clears throat> I believe so. I'm not sure. You'd think with 1U that, yeah, it would be a rack mount. Why not just go and buy something from um, NetApp? They, they, they've got some pretty decent stuff. He, he doesn't have a very strong connection. He doesn't say whether... Yeah, I, I'm going to assume a 1 gig will be sufficient for, for what he wants. Right, not but 10 gig. But NetApp has a lot of really good good stuff for... NetApp? No. NetGate. Uh, Netgate. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Totally different type of solution. <laughs> That's not the first time I've done that. Uh, when you put the wrong sponsor logo on them. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there there are some very small solutions that you can get from NetGate. Just very very tiny little boxes. We're only talking, you know, not much bigger than your cell phone when you look down from above, and maybe about as thick as two or three cell phones, and sometimes two or three um, uh, NICs as well. You're not talking about. Um, cost or how much you want to spend, but I'm assuming that spending some money on it as opposed to cobbling it together from pieces at home is what you want to do. Uh, and I'm basing that solely upon the used 1U mini chassis. Um, these things don't take much power at all. Um, and that's what I do is I would buy one of the, buy something small like that ready-made um, you can buy many of them secondhand. Yeah. Um, just have a look through on eBay and grab something like that. Yeah, I know he um, says he doesn't. Um, he doesn't think. What is he? He doesn't think that the arm. You know, he worries about the arm appliance. Um, yeah. But and, not all of them are, are arm. Yeah, not most, all of them most are of the arm. new stuff from Net um, Netgate are now um, AESNI compliant. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, I mean, that, that is part of the nice And they're doing that because they're no longer supporting things without it. Yeah, right. I mean, like, it looks like, yeah, here you can get some, uh, you know, for start, starting anywhere at, like, 
couple hundred dollars, you can start getting some of the nice Intel Atom Atom software. And then if you know you get it from NetGate that they've done, uh, you know, done some tests to ensure that you'll get the kind of performance that you're looking for. Um, from my end of the woods, uh, the router I'm using right now uh, is is basically like a micro ATX Celeron yeah. processor. It runs yeah. the processor there. It's like TDP is like 10 watts. So I don't know if that's like low low enough for, for his use case or not, but uh, I don't have, I think I just have three gigabit ports on there, but it does it does everything I need and I haven't had much complaints. And it's nice enough that it has, you know, it has like some basic, it has, really has all the CPU features that I would want for, you, you can do, even do some like video encoding and as an SNI and, and all the features that I would really like. So it's been a pretty positive experience. I think I got the, like, it was like an old Celeron one, but a lot of the core ones, modern Celeron chips really aren't that bad. So it seems like there's some options. You can go to the pre-made ones. You can cobble something together yourself. I think there is a lot on the, on the low end. If you're not trying to push 10 gig traffic all the time, then you, yeah. you, you should be able to get away with a lot. Especially if you have a nice, you know, server NIC or Intel, yeah, Intel server NIC particular, uh, something quality there. We have good drivers, then it should work well. Yeah, um, I push a lot of data through my little um, net app, a net gate appliance. It's several years old, and I'm pulling data down all the time, sending data for backups, stuff like that. So. You should be fine with something that is very low powered because pushing bytes around doesn't take a lot of um, a lot of CPU. Yeah, especially if you're not doing a ton of filtering or you know deep packet inspection or, or any of that kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. hey, forward those along. So just find something that supports ASNI and just use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know like um, the Reddit PFSense community and the PFSense forum, they usually have some pretty good discussions about popular builds that they do. So if you are interested in doing it from yourself, not going with the pre-made appliance, uh, that's something I would recommend checking out. They usually have some, you know, various cost levels of, hey, premium or bargain basement, depending on where you fall. Yeah, I think you'd be able to find something rather easily. And let um, us know uh, what you Let us know with. what you choose. We'd like to know too. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, that's it for the feedback this week. You can send us feedback at techsnap.reddit.com or jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact uh, or finding us on Twitter. It's so easy. You have so many options. Please send us feedback. All right. And with that, it's time for the roundup, the final segment of today's show. We have some stories that just weren't quite big enough to make it into the first segment, but they're still important. Consider them homework for you and us. They're interesting stories we'd like to touch on just a little bit. And uh, hey, maybe they'll spawn some feedback. So first up, 8,000 vulnerabilities found in pacemakers. Wow. Okay. Well, that uh, doesn't sound like a good thing. Now, does it, Dan? No. I seem to remember a TV show where they uh, reprogrammed someone's pacemaker uh, using this, but basically, a pacemaker gets reset or adjusted using a programmer. Uh, the programmer isn't someone sitting at a keyboard; it's a separate device. They call it the the programmer of the pacemaker. Almost like, basically, like flashing something, or you know, yeah, similar to flashing exactly. So, p- 
pacemaker programmers do not authenticate to pacemaker devices and don't require that physicians do either. So basically, if you have a programmer, you can alter the pacemaker. Wow, that's kind of terrifying. So you can buy these um, programmers for somewhere between $500 to $3,000. So basically, not there's nothing cheap, stopping you from... Not cheap, but actually kind of cheap, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's like uh it's like kryptonite in that sense. Yeah, it's, if you just have it then you can you can program it. That's terrifying. So, yeah. I guess it's like the same kind of stuff we've talked about before, you know, how long it's taken IT, the internet for us to kind of start thinking with security all the time yeah. from the, from the beginning and I I think it's you know, it's the same way in the medical field, I'm sure. And in the automotive field and anywhere where technology is is touching. It's so it's so proliferated that uh, you know there's a lot of people trying to break in. So not only do you not have to authenticate, all of the programmers that they examined had outdated software with known vulnerabilities. Uh, Many of them run Windows XP. You're just trying to upset me with that, aren't you? As seen in other medical device verticals, keeping devices fully patched and updated continues to be a challenge, despite efforts from the FDA to streamline routine cybersecurity updates. Now, th this is an issue. If you change the code, the device needs to be recertified. Oh. If you... It's, I know that with... Um, if you have a plan certified, that that's why you keep seeing new releases of the 737. So they keep making it bigger and different and bigger and different. The thing is, if you built a brand new aircraft, you would have to go through the whole certification program again. Right, it's different than and just that, changing. And that's existing. why they keep, you know, making it longer and changing certain things. It's still the same aircraft, I swear. Yep. They're just making subtle changes as time goes on, and that's why. So I'm quite sure that you would have to, for a new release of software, even if it contained fixes, you would still have to go through the FDA recertification process. That makes sense. Does this have any tips for people? That is there any way you can mitigate this? Are they doing anything to increase the security? I don't think there's anything you can do. It's just that it's it's obscure enough, and why would anyone want to do it? That right. I mean, there's there's no there's no profit in it. There's so, not there's not the profit in this type of vulnerability for the people exploiting the vulnerability mm -hmm. that there is in exploiting right traditional what, what we have been talking about traditional. So are we going to see tinfoil shirts instead of tinfoil hats? I don't think that's going to work. No, probably not. No, no. Uh, but yeah. Well, that's terrifying. Um, I hope, hopefully, there can be some incentives placed here or uh, requirements that yeah we can and improve the security of these. People devices. have to keep things in in perspective. This is possible. It's not very probable. Right. Right. It's not like we we see this going on yeah. a lot. It's just one of those. For, first, someone has to know what kind of pacemaker you have and buy the right programmer. Yeah. And then understand enough about pacemaker programming to uh, do something about to it. To do yeah. something about it. it. Yeah. It's not very probable, but it does. You know, it is. It is a symptom of a, a larger mm -hmm. problem in our approach and our design. So it's, it's interesting in that respect. Yes. Okay. Well, then this is the roundup. On to the next item.
This is over at breakandenter.org uh, under their projects. It's called Inception. What is it? So basically, it's a physical memory manipulation and hacking tool which exploits PCMI-based DMA. So basically, the tool can attack over Firewire, Thunderbolt, Express Card, PC Card, and any other PCI, PCIe interfaces. So basically, it's they're, they're doing this in order to provide... I quote, a relatively quick, stable, and easy way of performing intrusive and non-intrusive memory hacks against live computers using DMA. DMA being, if I recall my acronyms correctly, direct memory access. I do believe. So what they do is they present a serial bus um, unit directory to the victim machine over the FireWire interface. And the victim operating system thinks it's a device which has been connected to the FireWire port. And since these devices utilize DMA DMA for fast, large bulk data transfers, the victim lowers its shields and enables DMA for the device. The victim now has full read-write access to the lower 4 gig of RAM on the victim. Oh, man. Wow. So... Why would you do this? So it's because the world's forensic experts, governments, and three-letter acronym agencies are using similar tools. So why don't we have one? Inception is free, as in beer. Here, take it and use it. A professional equivalent tool will set you back about $10,000 US. So basically, it's a GPL license. Um, You go from there. It talks about the the hardware you need and the software, which is just common open source software. So I'm sure it's useful to some people. It's not very useful to me because, well, I don't really do this sort of thing. (laughs) Right. Uh, But it does, you know, it, it, I I I think it is useful in that, uh, especially with like the proliferation of Thunderbolt over USB-C and other, um, you know, PCI equivalent devices that we do see maybe more of this, uh, you know, DMA accessible things than we did in the past with with more regular USB devices. Um, and I, I think this is one concern that's been talked about, but now we have like a very concrete open source thing that you can actually test against and show like, yeah, okay, th- I, th- if you plug this in, I can hack your system. This is not new software. Yeah, right. This has been around at least five years. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it just seems like it's, uh, you know, it's, if anything, more relevant now, I guess. It's interesting, though. Um, it, it sounds pretty cool, and I'm sure that some people listening will say, oh, yeah, hmm, I know it does, I'll it, use that. It makes me kind of want to try it. Like if, they've made it. if they've made it so easy, I can get it all installed and built and uh, hack myself. That is, always a, that is always a fun exercise. I did that um, with uh, once to show a, a previous roommate that their Wi-Fi password was insecure. Uh, so I I took a you know a packet capture of their handshake and then I uploaded it to the internet where they have those like uh, GPU they'll like, try to crack a bunch you know run a bunch mm-hmm. group group dictionary attack uh, with a GPU hash and then uh, showed them that I was like yep look see the internet uh, cracked your password. So you did a TCP dump of oh you just dumped the packets going over the uh, you do like uh you know you. 
you either wait for them to connect and capture the handshake or you send okay. like a D auth so that they have to redo the handshake. But it was, uh, you know, because he just had some, I forget what the password was now because it was, it was several years ago. But, you know, it was like some diction, it was like a combination of dictionary words and stuff. And I was trying to, we were in like an argument. I was trying to tell him like, look, you know, that's really not, if you're concerned about security, you really shouldn't do this. I know it seems like no one will probably guess it, but it turns out it's really easy to crack. So it's always, you And know, you did it. Yeah, well, the internet did it for me. But I told it to do it. So, yeah, I did it. Exactly. I mean, I could have if I felt like downloading the dictionary list or, or, or whatever. But I think it is useful in that vein to have these, you know, it's, it's nice when you have ways to show people or to demonstrate attacks instead, you know, makes them feel more real, might make people take mm-hmm. additional precautions, which is always good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on then. An ex-admin deletes all customer data and wipes servers of Dutch hosting provider. Oh, no, this doesn't sound like now, a good thing at all. When I first saw this, it was under... Uh, people are trying to get forth the idea that you really should do your backups because maybe your data will disappear from your ISP. Now, um, what's interesting about this title is it says ex-admin. I'm assuming ex-admin refers to the time he did it, not now. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean? Right. He wasn't fired for this, but he had already been he'd already been yeah. let go or had left the company. Yeah, they make that clear in the article, but I just found the the post uh, misleading. So this article doesn't go into much detail. They they just say, you know, it's gone. This is what the website used to look like. This is what it looks like now. But from what I've heard, and if you read the, excuse me, the headline carefully, he's the data was wiped off the servers. It doesn't mean it was deleted. It sounds to me that nothing actually valuable went missing uh, because if you look at the link, the first link, if you go to verilox.com, they say right there, um, after investigation, it looks like we didn't lose any important data. Originally, they thought all the data was lost, but it's not. Wow. So it just sounds like it's as if all the links to something were were wiped away, but the data is still there, and they're they're working uh, on getting it going. So it looks like all nodes are, are online now, and everything's back. Wow. They didn't lose anything. Despite what the first post says. So it sounds to me like um, someone wiped out maybe the websites, but not the actual data. Because they're they're a web host, right? So maybe he just removed all the redirects so that the incoming uh, queries went to the right location. Because Mm -hmm. I can imagine uh, various scenarios... Maybe they had a whole bunch of vhosts, and all of a sudden, he just wiped out all the vhost entries. You add back in the vhost entries, and you've got your website back. Right? Yeah, exactly. Whatever happened, I'm very glad to hear that they didn't lose all the data that they had, and uh, hopefully, this will trigger an internal review of their separation processes, and they can highlight. This happened four four days ago. Okay. So so I'm hoping to see a really good. yeah, um, post mortem here at some point. Post mortem come through. 
yikes ah that's a that's a horror story i'm glad they've got it and you know we talked about this a little when we mentioned the um that joint outage um a couple shows ago and it's the same kind of stuff you know where like they're suddenly having to think about like well how do we how do we reboot all of our infrastructure i think someone from joint was at bsd can oh okay nice that's fun and then somewhere on twitter i saw perhaps joint should uh sponsor bsd can next year Ah, so if you're from joint you're listening you know my number exactly okay well then on speaking of bsd let's just jump right to the next story microsoft azure adds open bsd support yeah that's right Mm -hmm. i'll say it again azure adds open bsd support they gave a talk at um bsd can about this did they Uh, oh cool or, or they gave a talk about Azure, and they were mentioning that they'd added OpenBSD support. And this is pretty cool. So, you know, at one time, BSD was too obscure for the for the cloud. Yeah, totally. No one supported it. But these days. These days. Yeah, you know, you know it makes sense. Like, they, um, you know, we heard a lot about them working with the FreeBSD project to get that to be first class mm-hmm. on Azure, which is great. Um, and it seems like Microsoft's shown a little bit of a different face in this in this cloud world. They they were working on their own switch, Linux-based mm-hmm. switch operating system. It seems they've really accepted that the cloud is done a little bit differently. Uh, so it's cool to see them recognizing OpenBSD as a great security appliance, security-focused operating system and you know all the other wonderful qualities that it has so now we can go out and uh play with it i do have an insure account i don't use it very much but maybe maybe it's time to take that for a spin yeah i've got to fire up uh i have a digital ocean dropper and i asked colin percival of bsd can um about you know why use DigitalOcean over EC2 or, or why use Azure over EC2 and stuff like that. And it was in, interesting to hear his suggestions for it. Um, but that was mostly related to his particular need. Uh, okay. um, f- for me, I don't think it makes much difference. It's just all a matter of price or convenience right, so yeah. it boils down to a personal choice whatever works for you you have experience with you have scripts mm-hmm. for and costs a reasonable amount something like that anyway mm-hmm. awesome all right well it's cool to see that and uh, good on the open bsd project it's a it's a great operating system so hopefully that will increase its reach okay uh time for the final roundup item how to track what congress is doing on the internet yeah, yeah this is ghostware um, so basically, uh, after oh, after Congress decided that ISPs could sell your data without your permission, uh, this guy decided, well, let's see what Congress is looking at. The IP addresses used for Congress are are used by Congress are public, and so what this guy has done is created a plugin that you can use on your website to point out that, hey, look, this IP address is from Congress and they're look, reading your blog post, for example. That might be useful to you, but uh, on a global basis, you'd have to get a lot of people digging into this to make this useful. It's useful to an individual. It's not useful 
on, say, a national basis. Uh, you'd need everyone to be using it in order to do that. And there's an issue here where you can't actually give this information out. It's still a privacy issue, but because you're just tracking the entire subnet, there's no privacy issues involved. So if you were to collect all this information together, I can't see there being any privacy issues whatsoever because you can't identify anyone. It's just an IP address from, oh, well, maybe you could identify it. If you could figure out what the IP address belonged to within Congress, maybe you could. But yeah. surely they're using that. Yeah, they're not I handing out. So. They're not handing out public IPv4 addresses to everyone, are they? Or are they? I mean, they might be. You know, they might have a a big fat allocation they're sitting on, so they could. But you would you would think that at this day and age, that wouldn't be the default anyway. But who knows? It's interesting. It, this is an interesting idea. It kind of makes sense that it's that it's ghostware. Um, but it, yeah, it, it it might be it might be interesting to look at. Yeah, well, there's a Congress Edits Twitter account. Oh yeah, that's and, fun. And this new thing works similar to that, where there's an automated Twitter account that tweets whenever a Wikipedia page is edited from IP addresses associated with Congress. Someone in Congress is editing this Wikipedia page. That's interesting. Yes, it is. It's always interesting to see, you know, uh, what what you can learn. They get uh, they get to look at our metadata. Maybe it's only fair that we get to look too. But perhaps not. Anything else you want to add? Nope. Okay. Well, thank you. I guess that wraps up the show today. <laughs> it's been wonderful to have you back. Uh, you know. Thank you. Cough and all. Yeah, cough and all. Hey, allergies affect everyone doesn't matter that you're still here i think this has been a great episode today in particular i think an ipv6 deep dive might be something we'll definitely have to do because uh it's an interesting topic and i think it would be a natural fit for the show if only i knew more about it yeah i've uh, i've done the job so maybe we can pre- maybe we can prepare some things um yep i guess that's it for episode 323 this has been uh, tech snap broadcast live on june 13th 2017 if you'd like to find out more head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com there you'll find the archives our show if you go over to slash contact you'll find the contact form there's also slash calendar which will tell you when we're here live you can come join the irc room it's a lot of fun you can also find us both on twitter i'm at Wes Payne. he is at techsnap underscore dan and you can go to techsnap.reddit.com thank you very much for viewing and uh show up next week it's gonna be a blast See ya.